0: All right, the kids can be dismissed for Sunday school, and as they are, Franny Merritt just had a birthday. Happy birthday to Franny Merritt. Told you I wouldn't forget. Uh, go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to the book of Romans. If you have one, if you don't have one, there should be one on a chair within reach. i have to look around just a little bit. Definitely grab one. Romans is in the New Testament, sort of towards the end of your Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and we're in a verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans. Uh, we started in chapter 1, verse 1. We, we try to do uh, here what's called expository preaching, which is just to, is just to say that we uh, will we'll take whole books of the Bible and just kind of study right through them one verse at a time and uh, let God's Word speak for itself. Romans chapter 7, and as you're turning there, welcome to all of you. Good to see you, especially those of you who are newer. Thank you for joining us. It's a joy to have you here with us uh, to gather for worship and really as we ascend in our time of worship through the hearing and the study of God's inerrant word. We have made it through six chapters in Romans. There are 16. We'll see how long it'll take us to get through the rest. But we come now to Romans 7, a new chapter and an interesting one. Well, you've probably heard the stories. Uh, It's pretty common. In October of 2017 in Bloomfield, New Mexico, uh, the Supreme Courts ruled that the Ten Commandments monument outside of the courthouse needed to be removed, so they removed it. And then in Oklahoma... I think it was Oklahoma City, the Supreme Court also ordered that a Ten Commandments monument be removed from the Capitol grounds. This is a few years back. This is common. Sad situations that have not been out without consequences, like clipping the elevator cable that's lowering the elevator. There's lots that could be said about that, but I want to focus on something else to do with the commandments. The Ten Commandments of course, are good. Romans 7 will say that. They're good, they're righteous, they're holy. And if a person doesn't like them, that's, of course, not a commentary on the quality of the commandments, but a commentary on the spiritual and moral palette of the person who doesn't like them. I didn't used to like them. I think you could do a sociological anthropological study and get the most gifted anthropologists in the world and amass them together and do a study and see if, this would probably be somewhat hypothetical, as you understand, that if a society collectively said, we're going to do our best to keep these commandments, I promise you, you would not be able to find evidence that doing so harmed that society that that society was not worse off, that that society did not have greater sociological, social, whatever kind of problems. In other words, if a society said, well, we're going to give it our all to not steal, but give, not covet, but be thankful to God in all things and for everything. Sexuality only in the context of monogamous marriage, faithfulness, restrained sexually, such a society would not be one that would be harmed from keeping those commandments. That would not make that society worse off at the risk of insulting your intelligence. The commandments, these are God's law or an expression of his law. They're a reflection, as we sang in our first song, the holiness of God. When when someone has... Rules, someone makes rules, that's kind of a reflection, and expression of who they are, what they're like. And they are a reflection, reflection of God's holiness and his beauty. But I think at times there can be confusion about God's law or the Ten Commandments. What are they? Are they just some ancient rules that don't apply today? Sure, they, 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 they might be something nice to think about and, you know, a little bit of a a nice sort of moral path, some suggestions, but really ultimately they don't have much relevance today. Or other ideas that the law or God's law, and when I say the law, I'm I'm speaking about God's law as revealed in the Torah or the first five books of the Bible, especially Exodus as we read at the beginning, or Leviticus, etc. Or are the Ten Commandments, are they like a roadmap to heaven? If you... Do a decent job of following them. That that'll kind of lead you right to the pearly gates and old St. Pete will be there to high-five you for you know, doing a decent job, 78%, maybe 65%, maybe higher if you do a real good job. Is that what they are? What if a person doesn't believe in God? Uh, or maybe you're a Buddhist or Shinto, or Rastafarian, or uh, self-proclaimed atheists. We understand from Romans 1, there's no such thing as an atheist. But if someone proclaims to be, or they just don't proclaim to be a Christian, or whatever it might be, do the Ten Commandments apply to them? And if so, how? This morning's passage will tell us this, among other things. Every single person ever born relates to God's law the Ten Commandments expressing part of God's law. Every single person relates to them in one of two ways. You can choose what religion you might want to be. That's really irrelevant. You relate to God's law in one of two ways. And understanding this is essential to understanding life's most important question. How can unholy people, which is every person born, be in right standing and spend eternity with a holy God. How does that work? Understanding what the Ten Commandments are, very, very precisely what they are, how they function and do not function is critical to understanding how can I get to heaven? How can I have hope? Understanding the gospel. And the passage in the rest of Romans 7, in one way or another, will go deeper into answering the question, how does salvation work? In our Sunday school class this morning, uh, there are some questions about about the LDS faith or those who describe to Mormonism. How does that differ um, from biblical Christianity? And it differs in looking at the details which absolutely matter of what it means that Jesus came, lived the only sinless life, died on the cross, and rose. Both systems, Scripture and LDS, Joseph Smithism, talk about these things. But understanding the law in part is essential to understanding the chasm between the two faiths, the gospel. Who cares about that? Because the more we understand the details, or heaven and hell are in the balance, but the more we understand the details, the more we understand the glory and the love of Christ, which is essential to getting through the day. Follow along as I read then. I'm going to start in verse 23 of of Romans 6. The last verse in Romans six, and then we'll read through. I'll read through verse six of Romans chapter seven. Romans six twenty-three. God's inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word reads: "For the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord." Chapter seven, verse one. Or do you not know, brothers? For I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is master over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman has been bound by law to her husband while he's living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she's joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, so that she's not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Verse 4. So, my brothers, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused, were aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were constrained so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness the letter, the word of God. If you haven't been with us, just a reminder of what's going on in the book of Romans. Romans is given to us by God through the pen of the Apostle Paul about mid-50s, first century to the church in Rome, a church mixed of Jews and Gentiles. And there was a lot of discussion about the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, the law, the gospel, some being from a more Jewish background, You know, they've been instructed a lot in the Torah. And there is a little bit of confusion. How much of this applies? How much of this do I have to keep and go to heaven? What does Jesus have to do with this? Is the Gentiles, non-Jews, having not been instructed much if at all, at least at growing up, heard mostly about Jesus and weren't as familiar with the law. So Paul is is wrapping his arms around the church and talking in detail and, and kind of walking us into God's control room to see the wonderful, not tedious, the wonderful technical details of what it means to be saved and go to heaven. The gospel of Jesus Christ, gospel meaning good news. Since we're in Romans seven, chapter one through three, a little, a little summary. Chapter one through three tells us very simply: Look, human, human race, you're not as great as you think you are. Uh, where God has told you to go left. You've naturally wanted to go right, go right. you wanted to go left. Where God has placed do not enter signs, morally, spiritually, the human race errs on the side of hitting on the gas, and don't you tell me. Point being, we need a savior. We've fallen short of God's law that comes way before Romans that was given in 1400s-ish BC. We need something desperately to restore that relationship between humanity and in God. Romans 3 to 5 goes on to say, guess what? God in his mercy, not man by his works, because our works are like just filthy deeds before God, Isaiah 59 tells us. God did the work, moved by his love for the human race, motivated by his own glory to show mercy on lawbreakers. God came down and through the biblical person of Jesus Christ, Jesus lived according to the law like no one ever has or could, perfectly. He then died on the cross, satisfying the law's requirement for a penalty, rose from the grave showing he was sinless and is sinless God-man, that by faith in him, what happens is, one of the most important phrases to know as a Christian, what happens is, justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Justification by faith alone in Christ alone. If you don't know that phrase, you need to. It's essential, it's what Romans is all about, where God says, the moment you put faith in the biblical Jesus, this double imputation thing happens, or crediting. God considers all of your sins, even the ones you haven't committed yet, to have been imputed or credited to Jesus such that his death pays for them all. Simultaneously, God credits or imputes the righteous life of Jesus Christ instantly irreversibly to the life of the sinner that God now forever looks at them as if they had lived Jesus's life Romans 3 to 5 So the question in Romans 6 and 7 is if you tell people that they'll say oh that's cool God looks at me as if I lived Jesus's life I can just go live however I want now and abuse that grace and I'm forgiven I can just just live it up rack up my sin and I'm forgiven so who cares I don't have to be changed. And in Romans 6, God says, no, that's not it at all. Because those who are saved will be sanctified. In other words, those who receive by faith the good news of the gospel will be transformed by the gospel where they will want to, albeit imperfectly, live a life pleasing to God. So no true Christian will ever do that, abuse God's grace. Now, Romans 7 gets in and gets real technical, real, real good stuff. And I know all of you. Your regulars here, you regulars, Sarah. The more it's, it's technical in the Bible, the more you like it. I know that about you, and I'm grateful for that. Romans seven then talks about okay. Look back at look back at verse fourteen of Romans six, real quick. Romans six fourteen, Paul says, "For sin, speaking to believers, shall not be master over you." Romans six fourteen, for you are not under law but under grace. So he's circling back around because some more Jewish-leaning people spiritually would say, whoa, that we're, we're not under the law. We're not under God's law. We're not, we're not under the Ten Commandments. What, what do you mean? Are you just saying we throw it out? That like picking up the Ten Commandments monument from some Capitol building and just chucking it into the county dump that we don't need it anymore? What, what, what's going on there? How does the Christian relate to the law? God's going to clarify that. Verse 15, look at Romans 6:15. What then? Paul is asking a question that people were posing, shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? And of course he says may it never be. But what does it mean we're not under law? How does the law relate To a Christian, every human born, whether you're a Satanist or a nothingist or a just self-worshipper or a Christian or whatever, every human born relates to God's law in one of two ways. And this passage will help us see that. Romans 7 can be understood in three chunks, just kind of a 37,000 foot view of Romans 7 as we're getting into it. Verses 1 to 6, the believer and the law. Verses 1 to 6 looks at the believer in the law. Verses 7 to 13 talks about the law and sin. How those two relate together. Sin meaning just a, the word sin just means missing the mark, missing God's moral mark. And then verse 14 to 25 talks about the believer in sin. How the law kind of does something inside the believer Yet we understand that though the gospel changes us, we're not perfected in this life. How does that all work? And some of you have been asking about that. Hey, in Romans 6, the word of God said that we're all changed, but I still struggle. Never fear. That doesn't mean a person isn't saved. Romans seven fourteen to 25, we'll talk about that. Some things to chit-chat about first in Romans 7, 1 and following. So, and as we're talking about this, Romans 7 is really a the spiritual biography of every believer. This describes, inerrantly, the spiritual biography of every single person who has ever been saved, who has ever gone to heaven. Their spiritual biography in this life, not necessarily all the details of where you worked and you know your, your passport and all this, but spiritually what your life is like, This is what it's like spiritual biography. So, we're going to see two points in understanding the believer's relationship to the law. Two points in understanding the believer's relationship to the law. First, we'll just see the illustration in verses one to three the illustration that death releases obligations. Very simple. That's all we're going to say. Death releases obligations, huh? We'll get there. And then, second, in verse four to six, we won't actually get through verse five and six. The application, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. First, number one, the illustration that death releases obligations. Verse one through seven. Look at verse one of chapter seven. Or do you not know, brothers? Brothers, he's speaking to believers now. This is to those who have surrendered their life by faith to Christ. He's going to talk to them about how the law relates to them. And we'll observe also how the law relates to those who are not yet going to heaven. Or do you not know, brothers, from so speaking to those who know the law? So the original audience for a century, some folks in the church there who knew a little bit about the Ten Commandments, the Torah, God's law. But this basic truth, he gives this illustration, look at verse one that the law is master over a person as long as he lives very simple. And when law is used here in verse 1, it's not talking about the Bible or the Ten Commandments. It's just talking about like a law in general. He's saying this, like, say you live in some country. As long as you are living in that country, the laws of that nation apply to you, right? But if you die, you can no longer, the, the law no longer has any bearing on you. You can't obey the law. You can't be punished by the law. You're dead. Right? Basic principle, you're living under some nation, its laws apply to you, you're dead, they don't. Okay? And then verses 2 to 3, he's going to illustrate that in kind of a, at first, a seemingly odd illustration. And verse 2 to 3 is still under point number 1. Look at verse 2. For the married woman has been bound by law to her husband while he is living. So he's wanting to illustrate how the law bears upon someone if they're alive or if they're dead. The point here is not to get into the intricacies of marriage and divorce. Okay, that's a different passage. That's like 1 Corinthians 7 and Matthew 19 and Ephesians 5. The illustration is used of marriage to show the idea of one's obligation to law while they are living, in particular, marriage. We understand people throw this off. God doesn't throw it off. A husband and wife are bound together while they're living, They violate God's law if they go play marriage with anyone else. Very simple. Verse 2, look back there. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. You get the idea. If a spouse dies, it's kind of a sad illustration. But if a spouse dies, maybe, maybe for not some people, which is sad too. If a spouse dies, they're free to remarry they will not be committing adultery or violating God's law if they do. Okay, the death of a spouse releases obligation because that spouse is dead. And verse three is gonna get into that a little bit more. Look there, verse three. So then, if while her husband is living, she's joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. The death, again, very simple. If while two people are married, a spouse goes and plays marriage, with someone else, that's adultery. You've broken the law because your spouse is still alive. Look at, the, look at the end of verse 3. But on the contrary, sort of repeating, if her husband dies, she's free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Very simple. Don't get lost in the weeds here in the illustration of marriage. There's been a lot of confusion on this passage unnecessarily. This is not, an, this discussion of marriage, it's not an allegory. An allegory is where there's like some word picture or illustration where every detail in the story has some parallel spiritual truth. Like the book, The Pilgrim's Progress, for example. That's not what is happening here. This is just an illustration to show us and demonstrate the idea that death releases somebody from the binding of the law, okay? Illustration of marriage, spouse dies. You're not bound to that spouse anymore. They're dead. You want to find another spouse, you can. If you don't want to, you don't have to, okay? Death releases obligation to laws. That's the point of the illustration. We don't want to overcomplicate things. So verse four and following now in verse six, in talking about the believer's spiritual biography, we'll apply that principle. Death releases from obligation to a law in talking about the Ten Commandments. All right? So number one, the illustration, death releases obligation. Point number two. Number two, the application. The application. Christ's death releases us from the law, joining us to him. Christ's death. This is the application. Christ's death releases believers from the law, joining us to Him. Found. This is found in verse four to six. And this. This is. Uh, well, we're going to spend the rest of our time in verse four because there's lots of wonderful stuff here and a few subpoints. Few subpoints. Number one subpoint. This is the one we're going to spend the most time on. Through Christ's death, believers died of the law. Through Christ's death, subpoint, believers die to the law. The beginning of verse 4. Meaty, meaty stuff in Romans 7. Look at verse 4 with me, if you would. Therefore, so my brothers, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. So, This text wants to continue to hold our hand and dive deep into God's love. To do so, we need to understand a lot about the law, the Ten Commandments, the Torah. We get to understand a lot about that. He says, you were made to die to the law, speaking to those who had by faith surrendered their lives to Christ. So we need to ask the question, okay, if someone's died to the law, in what sense now speaking the law of God's commands, okay? Now that's what it's speaking of in verse four to six. Now it's speaking of God's law, the 10 commandments. If someone, if a believer is one who dies to the law, in what sense before they were a believer, were they not dead to the law? If you die to something, you're alive to it. What, what does that mean? That, a, that someone before they're a believer is alive to the 10 commandments? What's happening there? What's our relationship every human's relationship to the law. To get that, we need to be reminded what is the law so we can understand what it means to be dead or alive to it, right? Okay, in general, you're, you, you know God's moral standards, the law, found in the Torah. The, the word Torah also means law. God's law, you know that, that stuff in uh, Leviticus and Exodus, it can be thought of in three expressions. The ceremonial law, stuff about, okay, keep, keep the Feast of Booths, keep the Passover, uh, keep the, uh, the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. These ceremonies, these festivals, the ceremonial law. Then, in the Torah, we understand there's the civil law, the civil law, in other words, laws where God's talking about, here's how you deal with like cases of homicide versus manslaughter. Deuteronomy five, four, is all over. And and it's incredible to read it because it, it testifies that the Bible is in fact the Word of God, because the nations that were surrounding Israel at the time in fourteen forty six BC at the time of the Exodus, just after just before when this is given, they had nothing like these laws. Nothing. So this wasn't just an evolution of man thinking we should be gooder and moraler. This is God dropping it from heaven through the pen of Moses. Civil law. Okay, here's how you deal with, you know, these these tragedies of life, like rape, incest, murder. Civil law. And then the moral law, which would be expressed in the Ten Commandments and other places. Some of the more disturbing parts. Some of those disturbing passages in Leviticus, like don't do these things, you read that, you're like, I, I won't even think of that. It's very important that God puts it in there. And the reason he does in part is because of the, the wickedness of the human race, but also he says, because the other nations do this stuff. Right? So civil, ceremonial, moral. Now, all of the law is moral and that you are, in the sense that you were commanded, if you were there then, you're commanded to keep all of it. You're commanded to keep the festivals. You're commanded to keep the civil. And it was a moral issue. That's just sort of a way to think about it. So the, the 10 commandments, this is God's criteria. You know, a lot of people say, I'm a pretty good person and think I'm, I'm, a decent, I'm a decent guy. I'm a decent gal. That's fine if they think that. But here's God's criteria for what is a good person? What, Or if you're going to attempt to get to heaven by works, fictitious situation, we understand. The Ten Commandments also say in part, here's here's kind of how that would need to look. Okay? Now, two more things that are critical to understanding the Ten Commandments. You see a lot of you shall not. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not lie. With every you shall not you understand that implicitly there is a you shall. If, when it says you shall not covet, God's also saying you shall be thankful. Because to not be covet is, the opposite of that is to be grateful, to be a person of gratitude. Or you shall not commit adultery, you shall only have sexual relationship with your spouse in the context of monogamous marriage. With the other gender. So whatever you shall not, there's a you shall. The second thing that is critical to understanding about the Ten Commandments, it's attitude and action. It's of the heart and of the hands. The commands are not just outward. And Jesus clarified, he didn't make new laws, right? We saw that in Matthew 5:17. Jesus clarifies this in Matthew 5, 23 and following. He says, look, some people say, well, you know, you don't commit adultery. He says, but it's not just enough if you haven't like physically cheated on your spouse. It's also of the thoughts. And same with murder and the thoughts and all that. So with every, out, the commandments are not just outward action, but inward attitude. That's God's intention, right? All right, the first commandment, only one God. You shall worship him only. And again, these are found in Exodus 20, and Deuteronomy 5. So if that's the case, then guess what? No other gods. You're not not allowed to have another religion, in other words. That is exclusive as it gets, which makes sense because there's one god. Second, no idols. In other words, you can't put anything above God, whether it's your own self-image, a totem pole, some other guru, your money, the way you look, whatever it is. Third commandment, don't take the the, the Lord's name in vain. Don't carry it along with you in an empty way, whether it's an expletive using God or Christ or whatever, or just an emptiness with which you express God and Christ. Fourth, the Sabbath, which was Saturday. We don't keep that one. You're right. In spirit, we do. But the Sabbath was fulfilled in Christ, Hebrews 4 says. We worship on the Lord's day now. Okay, much bigger conversation for another time. Now, these first four commandments, uh, theologians have observed that the the, the 10 commandments have two tables to them. There's two tables to the law, they say. So the first table, commandments one through four, they all relate to having a sold out, humble love for God. Commandments one through four, love for God. And then commandments five through 10, more relate to the second table of the commands relate to a love for your neighbor, a love for people. Commandment five, your father and mother, you need to honor them. And I do. I need to honor my parents. Me, almost fifty years old, my parents are quiet. You know, are getting up there. I need to honor them. And if you're a teenager, whether you're uh, whether you profess Christ or not, you need to you know honor your parents. That's a command of God. We all need to honor our father and mother, not because they're God, not because they're perfect, but because God is God and he says to. Sixth, murder. Shall not murder. Whether in your heart against someone or physical. Seventh is adultery. Thought about that. We talked about that. Whether in thoughts or imagination or physically total sexual purity before God. Eighth, do not steal, which means you you need to give. Ninth, never lie, which means always speak truth. Whether it's a white lie or whatever. Tenth, do not covet, which means always be thankful to God. Now, here's the thing about the commandments. When God gives the commandments, it's like he's saying this, don't drink arsenic And don't have antifreeze milkshakes. I don't want you to make arsenic and antifreeze smoothies. You can make smoothies out of other things, but not arsenic and antifreeze. The thing with arsenic, it's tasteless. When it it contaminates food or water, you can't taste it at first. Afterwards, it shreds you apart. You read stories of individuals like Napoleon who were assassinated through just little drops of arsenic here and there, and it just destroys you. Same with antifreeze. Before manufacturers started putting that bitter-tasting compound in it, it tasted like a, it tasted like a raspberry shake. It tasted like, like, a, like a lollipop or a Jolly Rancher. It tasted sweet, which is why dogs would always kill themselves drinking it. it. Tastes sweet at first, it destroys you. It destroys your organs, your heart, you go into a coma. This is what God is saying with the commandments to disobey them, to go against them. It's like drinking that that antifreeze milkshake. It tastes sweet and nice and fun at first. This feels right. This feels good. This feels smooth, but eventually it destroys you spiritually and morally when you go against the commandments and hit the gas where God says, do not enter. God only gives commandments. God only commands what promotes your peace your joy, your stability, and your holiness. He will only command things that do that. He will never command things that promote your harm. So it is with the commandments. Jesus summed up the commandments in Matthew twenty-two, thirty-seven 37 to 39. Love God absolutely perfectly, constantly in your attitudes and actions, and love people perfectly in utter humility, respect, sexual purity, kindness, benevolence, gentleness, tenderness, obedience to God. Flawlessly, and then Matthew 5:48, we say it often. He summed it up even one more way. You just need to be perfect. If you are going to be a good person, this is what it takes. You must be as perfect as God. If you're going to say you're a good person, or if you're going to go to heaven by your works, by trying hard, this is what it takes. In Galatians 3, chapter 10, it says, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all of these commands. So it's not multiple choice. It's not like, well, hey, I've done, you know, I've done like six out of the 10. We understand that because James 2 says, if you fail in one, you fail in all. It's all or nothing. Because if you fail in like lying, it shows you have, you've failed at making an idol as well. You had something more important to God that you didn't speak the truth in that moment. Now, if, like I have, you've failed these commands innumerably, you're a guilty lawbreaker before God. And this is the situation with the human race. It's not how we adjudicate and think of ourselves, but it's how God who made us does. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all been moral lawbreakers. So our original question then, what's God's law? We just saw it, expressed in the commands, total perfection. His moral standard, what's our relationship to it? We've broken it. Even a Satanist will admit that. But why is every human being under God's law? Again, what if someone says, I don't believe that? When you're in charge of a certain territory or nation or your home or whatever, you typically are the one who gets to make the rules. Like parents have certain rules in their household, they get to do that. As long as they're not asking their their children to violate God's law, they get to make applications because they're in charge of that sphere. The one who's in charge of that area, they make the rules. If you manage a business, you're a manager somewhere, you have employees, you have a certain code of ethic that people need to follow. God's territory is the universe. So you might be a Satanist or an unbeliever or an atheist or a Buddhist in the universe if you live in this universe and you do, but since God, not Anton LaVey's or Hal Selassie or Joseph Smith or Gautama, since none of them made the universe, since the God of the Bible made the universe, he gets to say, "This, these are the rules of this universe. If you want to have your own laws, you can go make an, a different universe but you can't do that. So we're all under God's law. So we're under his laws, like natural laws, like gravity does this, light behaves this way, water behaves that way. And then the commandments, the moral laws. So we are all accountable to God and we enter life unwilling and unable to keep the law. We're fallen. What the law does is show us not, oh, I've been pretty good this week, but you're a failure. That's what the commandments do. It's good to have the commandments up on courthouses and elsewhere. It's a nice restraint. It's the cable, right? It's a little bit of salt in a decaying culture. But when you see it, and when I see it, to me, for us, it's a reminder, if we're thinking accurately about it, I'm guilty. That's what it does, Objectively. It's like, it's like in, the, in the Olympics with a shot put contest, right? The shot put for guys, and there are only two genders, right? For guys, 16-pound shot put, they spin around and chuck that thing. They can all chuck it about the same, right? That's like comparing each other morally to each other. But imagine that the shot put weighs 2,600 pounds, 2,600 pounds. They can't even move it, much less get it up to their hand on their shoulder, spin and throw it. That's like God's law. The the 2,600-pound shot put shows us how far short we fall to even throw it. Like God's law, the commandments show us we're going to need another way to be in right standing with God, to be acceptable, right? So to be under the law then means three things, and every human being enters enters the world this way. Number one, it means you're accountable to it because you live in God's universe and he made you. It means accountability, guilty, and penalty. That's the three, being under the law means those three things, accountability, guilty, and penalty. You're accountable. Number two, it means you're guilty. We've seen that. No one in their right mind would say that, oh, I I can keep all that perfectly in attitude and action, we're guilty. But also number three, the bad news and why the gospel is such a good news is penalty. With every law that's actually a law, the violation of it requires penalty. That's what's good for society. You might not think that with this, but if someone runs, runs you over on the street and takes your paycheck, you're going to want a penalty for a law, I assure you. So to be under the law means we're accountable to God because he made us. We exist in his territory, the universe. Number two, we're guilty because we've all violated. And number three, penalty. So if you look at the commandments and you think, wow, I'm a pretty good person, you're totally deceived, you're self-righteous, and you're not yet going to heaven. But you can by putting faith in Christ. So this is the situation. This is the situation. The law, beloved, let's think back to the marriage illustration in verse 2 to 3. The law, think of it like marriage. Unless you have surrendered yourself to Christ, you're like married to the law. You're bound to it, and you can't divorce in your own strength. And the law is a bad spouse. The law offers no help to do what it says. It only shows how you can't do what it says. The law only offers demands. The law offers no grace. It only declares our guilt. The law offers no mercy or for failing, it only requires our punishment for every instant of failing it. That's not a good marriage if spouses operate like that. The law offers not a single ounce of hope to save you. It only declares you're guilty, you need penalty all day long. but there's nothing wrong with the law. Romans 7, 12 says the law is good. It's us. When we look at ourselves honestly, guilty and penalty, but God, but Christ came to the rescue. This is what verse four is saying. So my brothers, Romans 7, you also died, it could just say, died to the law through the body of Christ. This is good news. Though we have violated the law, not once or twice, Twice, but continually, that did not provoke your God and my God and everybody's God to abandon us and to say, and it did not provoke him to say, straight to penalty, you shall go. It did not. It provoked him to say, I want to have lawbreakers in heaven with me. I want, I want to have lawbreakers in fellowship with me. I want to forgive them. Why would God do that? Because his own heart is loving. God is love. God isn't provoked by our law breaking like you and I would be. We'd be at our wits' end. God is love. Galatians 4 4 says, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. He was truly man. Born under the law, Christ was accountable, though not guilty. The under for him is a little different. He bore its guilt, he bore its penalty. We'll talk about that so that he might redeem those who are under the law. God came from heaven not to give us motivation to say, come on, you can do a better job. Here's my example. Just get motivated inside you, pull out the moral fabric in you, and you can bust forward and do gooder. Not why Christ came. He only came to deal with this situation in which we are under the law and married to this terrible spouse, the law. He said, I'll become a person. I'll live under the law. I'll do what is impossible for you to keep it perfectly. And then he went to the cross. And it says, verse 4 through, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. He offered himself up to God the Father. See where we talked about accountability, guilty, and penalty. Christ was accountable to live the law out as a person because he's a person. But the guilt, guilt was imputed to him. Penalty was imputed to him, not because he violated any of the commandments in thought, word, or deed. But for all those whom God would save, those who had ever put faith in Christ, our guilt for violating the law, Christ says, I will be punished for that. I will take that guilt upon me. Father, hold me guilty for those who had put faith in me, though I always obeyed the law, hold me guilty. This is what it means that Christ was a substitutionary, atoning sacrifice, and with guilt comes punishment. He says, This is what it means that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, by the way, beloved. He says, Take that penalty and put it on me. The law demands a penalty. And Christ said, I will serve it. This is what it means that through his body, verse 4, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. It's by his, not like the body of the church, his physical body. He was truly a man. And I mean, this, the, we, we, sometimes we only think of salvation only in terms of Christ dying for our sins, which was horrific, and we'll never know what it's like. But also he had to, in a sense, live for our sins, He had to live for our sins and die for our sins. He had to live for our sins and that he had to live perfectly according to the law and not cheat. He didn't cheat. He really fought temptation. You and I fall into temptation often. He fought it. He lived for our sins so that he could die for our sins. And so this weight of the law that that crushes you, and if you have yet to surrender your life to Christ, You have the weight of the law upon you. You have not died to it. It is upon you with weightiness, no matter if you feel it or see it or not. And the only way to get out from the law is not by your works, I'll do gooder today. You can't, you've already violated the whole thing like I have a million times. You need the only non-lawbreaker to come who has lived for you, lived in your place, and then bear the wrath and the penalty that the law demands so that, and only in that scenario, we could die to the law. It's incredible. We exist under the law, married to the law naturally, so it's, that's our state, but it's through the body of Christ that we die to the law. The text emphasizes it was through the body of Christ it was which means it was not our doing it's not anyone else's doing through which we die to the law it was his it was his substitutionary work so what happens is and Christ rose from the grave to declare sufficient funds what happens is when you put faith in him the law declares you're done Everything's been satisfied for you. God the Father declares that. How is that? Because when you put faith in Christ, God created the system of justification. You put faith in Him, His life of living it satisfies your requirement to live it on your behalf. His death satisfies the law's requirement for a penalty. And so, because Christ died, it's done. The law ate up the penalty. It was paid. The law says, I don't need anything more because Christ, the perfect God-man, died in your place to take the penalty. And so to be released from the law means united to Christ. Look at verse four. You were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. And this is really good news. This describes what happens. So you put faith in Christ, his life lived satisfies the law's demands to live it perfectly for you his death in your place satisfies the require for a penalty in your place and so it's like that husband died the law is now done it's deceased from that person, only the person who is but faith in the biblical Jesus, it's done. It's, sati- it's, its requirements are satisfied both in the life and in the death of Christ and in the resurrection. So then are you floating in no man's land? You're not. To be released means to be joined. What does it mean to be joined to? Verse four, so that you might be joined to another, to him who is raised from the dead. The releasing from the law by faith in Christ means joining to a new husband by way of the illustration We're joined to Him. So becoming a Christian, a believer, is sort of like a marriage to Christ, spiritually speaking. Revelation 19, 7 and 8 tells us this. We're the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5.25. Look, just knowing details about Christ and the Christian faith and then checking a box on the surveys, that doesn't make you saved and going to heaven. Just like... If a guy knows details about a gal, that doesn't make him married to her. He actually has to publicly covenant before God with vows and stuff. What makes, that's what makes someone married, married to each other. A solemn vow, loyally, exclusively bound together. An expression of trust towards each other. Loyalty. It's not a guarantee of I'll always be perfect. It certainly is an expression of exclusivity marriages. And that is analogous to becoming a believer. Loving loyalty to Christ. We become united to him by faith. Exclusive devotion to him. And there's a sense in which the believer even takes Christ's name, just like a husband takes, a wife takes her husband's name. We take the name Christian. That means like a, 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 a kind of Christ. I belong to Christ. I'm united to him. Dr. James Boyce, and his, the late James Boyce, in his excellent commentary, writes this, quote, Jesus took the vows, first of all, for he sought us long before we knew him or had responded to him. He said, I take you sinner, for that is what we are, to be my wedded wife. And I do promise and covenant before God the Father to be your loving and faithful Savior in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health for this life and eternity. That is what it is to become a believer. You as a human, you are either under the law or under Christ, no matter what we profess for ourselves spiritually morally religiously etc which which one do you want to be under you want to be under the law that tells you all day long you failed you failed you failed you failed and i'm not going to help you or under jesus christ who says i did it i did it i lived i died i shed my blood and covenant to me by faith alone it's not our works by faith alone come under my headship Jesus Christ declares to sinners Getting saved is like a heavenly wedding a solemn weighty covenant covenant made to Christ the king of kings forever joined to him in fidelity This can't be said about anyone else to get you out from the law You try to join yourself to some other idol, some other person, some other way of happiness. If I do this, it'll bring me happiness in my life. If I ascribe to this religion or that faith, nobody, nothing else can get you out from under the law. They're only band-aids. They fail to do three critical things, perfectly keep God's law. They fail to live as a sinless substitute to die for you, to pay for the law's penalty and to rise from the dead to prove that they are the one to whom you can now be joined such that you're actually out from under the law. Every human being then exists in one of two realms. Under the crushing, condemning, unbearable weight of the law or under just the liftoff giving, the soul flight enabling, peace giving, eternal life giving. One day, heaven enjoying freedom of the law, it's been fulfilled in Christ's perfect life for me, his death in my place, his resurrection to prove it all. Which would you have? To be under law or to be under Jesus Christ? Choose this day. You are in one or the other and it will be that way for eternity. And God is such a loving, forgiving, merciful God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace. You didn't didn't have to do this. You didn't have to construct a system whereby we could be forgiven. Whereby your, your law, which is a good law, don't steal, don't lie, be faithful. You did not have to make a system where we who can't keep that law perfectly would be released from its crushing weight, from the guilt, from the penalty we deserve. But you did because you are a God of love, such love. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that you loved us and sent your son to be the propitiation of our, for our sins to bear the wrath, to bear the penalty. Father, I pray, everyone here, everyone listening, we are either under the condemnation of the law or we are under the mercy and the grace and the salvation of Christ. And I pray that for all those under the law today, this morning, we would cry out to you with a surrendered heart and with an empty hand of faith, just saying, Father, I can't do it. I can't save myself. I can't get out from the law. I can't obey this law, much less serve the penalty for it, eternity. Would you save me? I look to Jesus Christ who has satisfied it in his obedience and satisfied its penalty in his death and his resurrection. Would you save me, Father? I pray that pray that those who are under the law this morning would cry out to you and cry tears of joy the releasing from the law's condemnation. And Father, help us, all who have by your grace alone have received Christ by faith. Help us go forward now and live in obedience to the law as your word commands. Not because we need to do so to earn our salvation. That's done, you did it but to glorify you and to live in the safety and the peace of obedience and fellowship with you, Father. Please help us. Please help us. Thank you that we do not have to obey the law to get to heaven, but we merely receive Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father. Let us look to him and trust in him today and this week in whose name we pray. Amen.